another episode of The, the Wild, Wild White. In this month's episode, we will be taking a look back at iWatch Wildlife's Species of the Year 2022, the two-spot ladybird. Discussing ethical farming with Phil Brook from Compassion in Wild Farming. We have some landscape listening and music from The Ohms. But our first guest today, Tim Brayford, has been gathering evidence that shows there are multiple species of deer living wild on the island. There are six species of deer in the UK, and there is evidence for five of those over here. Red, roe, fallow, sicker, and mundrak have been spotted on the island, with only Chinese water deer absent from any records. Although the island has been designated a deer-free zone... The British Deer Society released a statement in 2017 stating that Red and roe deer can be considered indigenous to the island and despite periods of absence, both species are continually recorded as swimming to the island from the mainland. Their presence may therefore be considered to be natural and part of a rich biodiversity. Tim Brayford runs the Isle of Wight Deer Conservation website and is running an island-wide survey to gather data on the deer population on the island. We met up with Tim to find out about his survey and how you can spot signs of deer in your local area. Hello Tim, welcome to the show. For our first question, could you please tell us how many deer do we have living on the island? In terms of numbers of deer on the island. The island's never been properly surveyed to see how many deer there are here. In fact, over the past 20 years, it's fair to say that deer have been very much underreported on the island. Um, I contacted the local record centre and they said they had no records at all. Well, fair enough. And basically, underreported. But So we don't know numbers-wise. It's just a hugely labour-intensive exercise to count deer, even on a small area of ground, even in just one woodland. And on an area the size of the island, you just never do it. Could you give us like like a ballpark figure? I don't really like to go too much into the lines of conjecture, but I'd, I'd say if you aggregated all the deer species on the island, you're into three figures, but not very high. Could you give us a quick rundown of the different deer species we have over here? I mean, the deer survey reveals it's about 30% muntjac and 30% red. Roughly after that, it's about 15% roe deer. The other 15% or so are really fallow and seeker. People, because fallow and seeker look very similar, they're sort of medium-sized spotted deer. People confuse one with the others. And to the casual observer, they are very difficult to tell apart. So... I've lumped those together because, say, people respond to the survey, the other percentages or so is make up by people who say, I've seen a deer, but I'm not quite sure what it was. What do deer eat? Deer herbivores, perhaps a clue in the, in the name, they are called large herbivores. Red deer and fallow deer, grass, herbs and browse vegetation. The smaller deer, particularly the roe, is called a select feeder and they'll go for the more nutritious buds and shoots on again and they're mainly eating um browse rather than grazing in other words you know sort of branches bushes they they're smaller deer and and basically that's what they go for so if you said broadly speaking what they eat wild grasses wild herbs particularly new growing shoots of shrubs are deer aggressive usually not 
times to be aware that they can be is mole deer having a scrap during the rut are best avoided and the other thing is mother deer is very protective of her baby most deer give birth from may june time really that's the time to be aware of it's a herding deer where you need to take a bit of caution they are so hyped up to scrap they wallow in their own urine and thrash the vegetation around and a red or seeker stag during a rut is best avoided. You'll know where they are, they'll be making a hell of a lot of noise. With red deer, it's a bellow not unlike what you might hear from a cow or a bull. What is their natural lifespan? Generally, the bigger deer live a bit longer than the smaller ones. Say something like a muntjac or perhaps a roe, you're looking at perhaps 10, 12 years. Red deer can go on sort of 15, 20 years. I think the um, record for a red deer that somebody kept on their farm for whatever reason. I think it's a, something they had rescued as, as a calf. I think it's something like 27, 30 years. Do they have any natural predators on the island? A young deer, newborn calves, fawns, and particularly the young muntjac, will fall for victim to foxes and to less extent badgers. But certainly, say, muntjac roots, small deer, yes, the foxes will take quite a toll on those. Um, potentially sea eagles would take a red deer calf and they certainly they do up in Scotland I would guess so that the sea eagles got plenty of other things that can scoff on the island before it goes around for, for a red deer um, buzzards could take a small, a very I say mainly muntjac fawn um, so yes, there, there are at the smaller level um, I mean if you think of the sort of stuff that might be scoffing a hare will be taking young deer how can our listeners spot signs of deer in their local area it's easy to confuse signs of deer with signs of sheep very similar animals fortunately to the trained eye a deer footprint is slightly different to a sheep one a sheep footprint i mean they're all about the same size but a sheep footprint is more rounded it has more rounded tips to it and it's generally more rounded hoof with a with a deer, it's got sharp, sharpish tips to it. It's generally this sort of, um, what kind of best describe it? It's sort of, if you think of it, an upturned heart shape. You sort of give you some idea compared to what, what a sheep one's like. So that is what you'll see most often, but most people don't look at the ground and see. Um, will you see evidence that the deer have been browsing on a twig or something? Again, only to the trained eye. Um, it's slightly different bite to what say a, a hare or rabbit will do uh, a hare or rabbit has got a very sharp bite like say a pair of secateurs of scissors whereas with a deer they don't have top teeth at the front so you've got this bottom teeth cut and a tear from the top um, which is quite distinctive when you know what to look for but ordinary members of the public will just look on it as a broken twig deer mainly move around at dawn and dusk People who see deer on the island and around the island in the sea, it's usually a chance event, disturbed while you're walking a dog, or um, more frequently people see deer crosses the road when they're driving. In the wild, deer are notoriously difficult to approach. If you're upwind from a deer, you'll probably never, ever see it, because they'll be off. Yeah. If you're talking, they'll be off. The, the, oh, perhaps the other thing I have to mention, you've got to move slowly. Deer don't actually see slow movements. Their eyesight is very different from ours. They've got 360 degrees vision, but they, can't, they can see it. Their eyes detect quick mo- 
quick, sharp movements, but not slow ones. You know, the thing I think deer really go for big time is is they don't like the smell of people. I, I've observed this from, again, chance events from high points. I've seen deer scarpering from dog walkers who never knew the deer was there. Are there any official records of deer living on the island? One of the earliest things I did was do a freedom of information request to the local record centre and they just told me they had no deer records. Well, this was crazy because um, county press was full of sporadic reports of deer on the island and a lot of other places. The whole idea of the deer survey was to try and gain knowledge, a snapshot of what is present on the island and what it's doing, even whether people are having environmental damage whether it's eating roses in people's gardens or eating farm crops. Amazingly, the deer aren't causing any problems. In contrast to the mainland, where, say, on the mainland, it's, it's not a general thing on the mainland in it, by any means. It, it's localised issues on the mainland of, of areas where they have had too many deer. Um, in terms of the Isle of Wight, do any deer need to be culled on the Isle of Wight? Not at all. They're not causing damage. And the fact of the matter is, when you look at the state of um, the wood pastures on the island... We definitely need more deer here. What is happening with the wood pastures, it's primarily Parkhurst Forest, but other places as well. Wood pastures also including woodland glade habitats. We're losing the butterflies. Uh, In recent years, um, both the pearl board of fertility and the small pearl board of fertility butterflies have become extinct on the island. Now, these thrive in woodland glades, and there is a connection with deer browsing because the University of Sussex did some research on this. Basically, yes... These butterflies thrive on the next rich plants found in wood glades and wood pastures, but these are habitats that the island's losing. Uh, Organisations in Natural England and um, Forestry Commission are aware of this, and they say, well, look, if you haven't got enough deer, just use a flail instead. Now, the trouble is tractor-mounted flails, brush cutters as well, they don't actually replicate the action of deer grazing and browsing activities and just mangle everything inside, yeah, whether it's a, a rare butterfly or a dormouse nest or whatever. Mm. Um, but there you go. So really the natural solution and what, what has been around on the island for sort of since the last ice age is, is large herbivore browsing and that really means deer. So as the largest land mammals native to the UK, can we consider deer to be part of a natural, healthy ecosystem? Not just maintaining a structure which perhaps we've focused on, but also distributing seeds around from the plants they browse on and, of course, fertilise when they're deer dung. And again, getting back perhaps to things like dung beetles, all the invertebrates that then live in that ecosystem. Uh, The ecosystems are quite complex. There's complex interdependencies in them. Uh, There is a balance in nature and a balance has to be struck. And this is where people, I think, with deer management come unstuck so often is either they neglect it and you've got too many deer, or you end up with the situation on the island where there's too few and you've got the environmental damage through that. Um, It's a careful balance. We need a few more deer on the island, certainly. Can we control their numbers without hunting? Culling deer, hunting deer, is in many ways a last resort. And it can be a necessary last resort. But yes, if it's a specific localised problem, you can use things like flashlights, bangers or so to deter them. If, so if you've got a very high deer population, it won't make a jot of difference because if you scare one, another one will come in its place. Places like the island, it will be highly effective because the deer will just clear off somewhere where they're undisturbed. And yes, you can put up deer fences. Traditionally, this is done in the New Forest, 
observed from the New Forest, uh, there's a lot of woodlands with the name of whatever their woodland is, followed by the name enclosure. And, and basically that means that in the early stage they put up a bank with wooden palings on top to keep the deer out while the woodland was established. These days you can put up a wire fence. So yes, those are options. If you're planting a bit of woodland, of course the other very obvious thing you can do is use a tree guard. So yes, there, there are other options. Well, thank you Tim for coming on the show today. We found it very enlightening and I hope our listeners have learnt a little bit about a relatively unacknowledged and rare animal we have over here. Well, well thanks for coming round. I hope that gives people some sort of an insight on what, what is here on the island. You can find out more about Tim's deer survey and information about deer living on the island over at isleofwhitedeerconservation.wordpress.com. This series is brought to you with the support of the Isle of Wight Creative Network. The Isle of Wight Creative Network supports artists and creatives on the Isle of Wight through business support, networking, resources and profiling, allowing creatives to thrive and become more sustainable. If you want to take a look at the work the Creative Network does or find out how you can sign up, just go to iwcreativenetwork.com or search IW Creative Network on Facebook and Instagram. During the winter, nature lies a little dormant waiting for the warmer spring months. And I Watch Wildlife is taking some time off to hibernate as well before starting its Species of the Month for 2023. We thought it would be a good opportunity to review its species for the year, the two-spot ladybird. Our most common ladybird in the UK has been in decline in recent years with climate change, an increase in the use of pesticides and an invasion of harlequin ladybirds in 2004 have seen a 40% decrease in native ladybird species over the same period. The two-spot ladybird can be confusing to identify as there is a lot of physical variation. They can have more than two spots and they can be red or black in colour but the key identifier is their size. At 5mm they are a lot smaller than the Harley Quinn. Ladybirds are great pest controllers and traditionally loved by gardeners in the UK as they feed on aphids and other plant-eating pests with some ladybirds even laying their eggs directly into aphid nests to ensure the larvae have an immediate food source. The traditional Isle of Wight name for ladybirds was either Lady Cow or God's Mighty Cow, and this association with religion is found in other parts of the UK and across Europe, with nicknames such as Bishop Barnaby in Norfolk and Suffolk, and names deriving from the Norse goddess Freya and the Virgin Mary common in many countries across Europe. As we are coming into January of 2023, now most ladybirds will be in hibernation but will wake up at any time the temperatures get above 10 degrees. So keep an eye out on any warmer winter days and you might spot some in your garden. If you spot any ladybirds, please take some photos, take a note of the time, date and location and send your sightings to iwatchwildlife.com or tag them at iwatchwildlife on Facebook and Instagram and your data can be added to the Isle of Wight species database. Ladybirds are predators for agricultural pests and deer are spotted across the island in a lot of open fields. And as 60% of the island is covered with farmland, we thought it would be good for our second feature this month to take a look at agriculture. 
With so much of the island given over to farming, agricultural ecosystems play a huge role in the biodiversity of the island. You have bacteria, fungi, invertebrates and other organisms living in the soil and the hedgerows are a valuable resource for birds and small mammals. A lot of our waterways run alongside farmland and our larger native mammals like hares, foxes and even deer share the fields with livestock. Sustainable farming practices are of huge importance to biodiversity as use of pesticides, monocropping and other industrial farming methods can have a massive negative impact on wildlife. We've changed the physiology and behaviour of livestock so they could no longer survive as their undomesticated ancestors once did in the wild, so we have a moral obligation to care for them and give them a good quality of life. While a move to a more plant-based diet would be of a huge benefit to our own health and the health of the planet in general, as long as humans have an omnivorous diet, we as consumers need to be aware of the impact our shopping and eating can have. This is where the work of Compassion in Wild Farming comes in. Since 1967, Compassion has been campaigning against the rise in industrial farming methods, trying to educate consumers in making ethical choices and encouraging supermarkets in changing the products they sell. We are very lucky to be joined on the show by Phil Brook. Compassion's Research and Education Manager to talk about the work they do and how the ethical choices we make in the supermarket can improve the lives of animals across the world. Hello Phil, thank you for coming on the show. So you work for Compassion in World Farming, so maybe you could just explain first off to our listeners what their aims are. So in Compassion in World Farming we care about the welfare of farm animals, that they have good lives and that we have a system that is good for the environment, good for people as well as for the planet. In particular we want to get rid of factory farming. So hens kept in cages, cows kept in systems where they're indoors all the time, chickens kept in overcrowded sheds. We think animals should have a better life than that. Yeah, and sometimes it can be a bit tricky for the consumers to sort of know the source of the thing that they're buying. The, the first thing to question to ask is, do I know where it comes from? And if you don't, don't buy it. Because the chances are, if it's not clear that it's come from a higher welfare system, it hasn't. If it is free range, it will say it on the packet. If it's meeting RSPCA assured standards, it will have an RSPCA logo on it. If it's to organic standards, which are again good for welfare as well as the environment and health, it will say organic on the packet. So the rule is look out for a clear sign that it's higher welfare, not just that it says welfare on the packet, because everybody says they care about welfare. RSPCA, free range or organic, or you've seen the farm where they've been produced, that is the way forward. Yeah, I think we're quite lucky on the Isle of Wight because we're in quite a rural area. So there are quite a lot of local farm shops and things where you can have more of an assurance for the source of it. But um, I think for supermarket shopping, maybe people just need to take a bit more time to look at the packaging and clue themselves up on what they're buying. We're talking about people changing the food production and changing their consumption. So is that what is known as food system transformation? So we need a food system transformation, we need to get away from industrial agriculture. But the second side of it is we need a less industrial system for growing crops. At the moment, we grow the same crop year after year, or maybe with an exception. So you have wheat on a field one year, the next year it's got rape, 
and the year after it's got wheat, and the year after it's got rape, and so on. And that combination means that the diseases of wheat and rape build up. So you end up using lots of fungicides to control the fungus that grows. You end up losing lots of insecticides to kill the insects that build up because you haven't got a natural system. Whereas what we should be trying to move towards is a system where we grow lots of different crops and maybe we don't grow crops every year on the same land. So, for example, organic systems, but it's in line with old fashioned traditional methods. You grow, shall we say, wheat and then barley and then rape and then uh, perhaps root some vegetable crops. And then you put it down to grass. And on the grass, you keep free range animals like um, cows and sheep producing meat or milk. Um, and while it's under grass, you're building up the fertility from the manure of the animals and the breakdown of um, waste bits of plant material. The soil is held together by the roots. You're improving the soil, not spoiling the soil. And then after four years, you, you plough it up again and you can grow crops and you don't need so many fertilisers. The pests don't have a chance to build up so much, so you don't need to use so many insecticides or fungicides. Indeed, in an organic system, you're not allowed to. All of this means that we have a better way of producing food that is more sustainable, that looks after the soil, uh, that stops putting so many poisons on the land. So we need to move away from intent intensive pigs and poultry, more towards free range, cows and sheep and so forth, but eaten less. Because if we want to get away from this industrial cycle, we've got to have a more sustainable eating pattern, which people, we are primates, we naturally eat lots of plants, and that's how we are healthiest. It's also the best way of producing food from land. It means we need, if we eat more plants, we need less land to produce it. We need less of these pesticides and insecticides. We're less likely to be tempted in the interests of cheap food to keep our animals in cages and overcrowded sheds. Presumably for that to happen on sort of an industrial scale, that will have to come through government regulations changing. It actually needs to come from a mixture. It needs to come from consumers. It needs to come from food businesses like supermarkets, and it needs to come from governments. And we're hoping for progress on all of these fronts. So consumers over the years have increasingly been buying free-range eggs so that most hens in Britain now live outside or have access to the outside. Lots of supermarkets are going to phase out caged eggs by 2025, and some have stopped selling them already. Now, you won't find caged eggs in Waitrose or M&S or Sainsbury's or the Co-op or Morrison's, uh, and, and others are developing that way. And we also need moves from the government, uh, and we are hoping that they will proceed with policies in the past which will include banning live exports, food labelling so you know what you're buying, um, and also to consider getting rid of cages for hens, to get rid of cages for sows, get rid of cages for quail. Yeah, I think one of the good things that's happened over the last few years is that people power seems to be dictating a lot of what the government do in terms of regulations and laws and things. So like you say, hopefully with consumers sort of changing their shopping habits, that will encourage a system sort of shift. 
I think it will. And people also need to write to their politicians, write to your local MP on the Isle of Wight and say, what are you going to do uh, to keep the promises of the governments to improve the animal welfare, to ensure that we have a sustainable future so that we have food security as well as animals being kept properly? That's something we need to keep up. If young listeners want to take up a career in agriculture after school, what are the best things that they can learn now? Well, for a career in agriculture, you want to learn lots of farm about farming. The second thing is to learn about animals and their needs. The third thing is possibly to get practical experience. Can you visit a farm? Can you visit a city farm? Can you get to know the animals so that you understand more about what they need? Get on Compassion's website, read up about what we're saying to try and change the lot of animals. Get involved in our campaigns. We talked about writing to your MPs, but there are other things to, to customer services and supermarkets saying, why are you still selling caged eggs? If they are still in caged eggs, why aren't you selling more slower growing chickens and free range chickens and so forth? All of these are things to do. And, and to, the more you learn and the do these kinds of things, the better placed you will be later. Practical experience, talking and listening to farmers, but also talking and listening to animal welfare people so that you get both of these sides are all ways that you could go into agriculture and be a good farmer. Yeah, I think we're quite lucky on the Isle of Wight because Medina High School is starting a agriculture GCSE and they, I think they're only one of two high schools in the country that are going to be running this GCSE. And I think that's really positive, but also make sure that these courses, they need to talk to animal welfare people like us. We have lots of educational resources for schools. They need to talk to environmentalists. We need to look at the whole thing in the round because agriculture is terribly important. It's terribly important to produce food, of course. It's terribly important to produce a decent livelihood for farmers, but it's crucial for the environment and the welfare of animals. Is there anything else that we sort of haven't covered that you think could be worth talking about? Just to leave you all with a thought that you have choices here. You can choose to eat factory farmed meat. You can choose to go free range or organic. You can choose to eat less meat or you can choose to go vegetarian. That's entirely your choice. But the average British consumer in their lifetime eats more than a thousand chickens, uh, more than 45 turkeys, 30 sheep, 20 pigs, likely to eat the life's work of 50 laying hens and of half a dairy cow. And you choose how your animals live. You can choose to go for the cheapest meat, milk and eggs, in which case it will be factory farmed, except perhaps some of the cows and sheep. You can choose to buy free range or organic. You can choose to eat less meat. You can choose to go vegan or vegetarian. It is your choice entirely. But whichever you choose is going to make more difference to the animal suffering in the world than any other choice you make. And it will also make a difference to your environment, the environment of other animals, and our ability to feed other people. Thank you. Wow. That is very, very good sentiments, really. Thanks for coming on the show it's been really fascinating to talk to you and i hope that it will sort of encourage people to consider their um, shopping habits and consider where the the food that we eat comes from and how that we as consumers can make a difference to the you know the welfare of animals which i think is a really important thing okay well thank you very much for having me well thanks for listening to the show We'll be back at the end of January with another episode. 
As ever, links for all the topics we talk about are in the show notes and on our website, theworldwidepodcast.com. To play us out today, we have a song from The Ohms recorded at Wolverton Manor by the YouTube channel Chusick TV. And our landscape listening this month was recorded on a windy night at Freshwater Bay at high tide. Until next time, stay stay wild. Hello, we are The Ohms and this is one of our songs. This is called Positivity. Songs we drive away negativity.